Today's episode of the Old Town Podcast is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Let's have a ball at Faneuil Hall. We love the Old Town team. Take the green line to the sicko sign. We love the Old Town team. Oh, the kid, yes, Remdog PD, you can wake. This is the Old Town Podcast, our Red Sox pod here at The Athletic. Please subscribe. Give us a five-star rating if you're listening on an app that allows that. I'm Tim McMaster along with Lars Anderson and a great guest on the show today. Bob Tewksbury is going to join us, longtime Major League Baseball pitcher, starter, and all-star back in 1992. But now for more time than his playing days, he's been a mental skills coach in the game officially, the senior advisor to mental skills with the Chicago Cubs right now. But he was with the Red Sox. Uh, back in the early aughts, 2005 to 2016, uh, helping a lot of the players that ended up winning World Series with the Red Sox. So excited to get to that. Before we talk uh, specifically to Tukes about his career, both playing and after his playing career, one thing to get to, Lars, and that is a brawl in Taiwan, which you have a tie into because they were using your company's bats. Explain. Yeah, so I, I got this... Um... I own a baseball bat company called Birdman Bats, and we have a, a Taiwanese rep named CJ, and he sent me this video of this really long video where a guy hit, gets an infield single. He's actually a former Red Sox player, Chase Juan Lin. He gets this infield single, and then the opposing team starts um, arguing with the umpire, and they, they're holding the bat, and they're pointing at the bat, and basically um, he was allowed to stay on first base, and it was deemed legal. But the next inning, um, Cheshwan Lin's teammate, Henry Sosa, who is a pitcher, and I actually faced him in low A when he pitched for the Giants, he threw three pitches at the opposing team, and the fourth one ended up hitting him in the hip, and they the benches cleared. But I kind of got the lowdown from CJ, who's, who is Taiwanese, and he said the opposing team, I think it was um, the Rakuten Monkeys, they were arguing that Lin was using an illegal bat that wasn't certified. We are certified by um, Taiwanese baseball, but they kind of called him out for using what they, they confused the logos. They thought it was a, a different logo. And um, basically that led to um, Lin's team thrown at them because they were so um, upset that they had protested, I guess. It was kind of a bizarre situation. And there's no fans in the stands because of social distancing. And then the guy ends up hitting him on the fourth pitch and social distancing goes to hell and they're all crowded in the middle of the field. So it's kind of just a ridiculous situation altogether. And it's all your fault. So my first question to you, Tooks, is are you surprised at all that Lars Anderson's bat company got involved in the first brawl of the post-coronavirus world? Oh, my God. No, not at all. Especially, you know, connecting a former Red Sox player and the bat company and and Lars's travels I mean Lars has been around the world and I'm probably there'll be something that happens in Australia <laughs> at some point uh maybe Italy there'll be some other things that come up but no that's a great story I guess I have a question for Tukes too would it ever have taken you four pitches to hit a guy <laughs> hell no jeez no. no but it's not as easy it's not as easy as you think you know I think um, it's not as hard as you just got to throw it right for the, the numbers. And, you know, as a hitter, that's a spot. You don't know where to go to get out of the way. But 
I'd like to think I could do it on one try. I think you could, considering um, your uh, your walk to strikeout ratio in your career. Can you tell us a little bit about that and give us the real numbers? I know, I know, one year you had 17 wins and only 20 walks, which is outrageous to consider. That's correct. Yeah, in 233 innings, and then uh, followed that, I think, with 20 walks and 213 innings the next year. So, um, well, I just think it's you know uh, not afraid of contact. So it's a mindset that I really wanted to put them and put the ball in play. Um, I'd rather have them hit it. There were a lot of balls hit hard that were caught. Um, you know, you can't catch walks. So I just really lived by that. Um, by that theory that I was going to make them put the ball in play. And, um, but that started in high school, you know, um, just my throwing partner oftentimes, well, especially when I was, um, or mainly for, for many years when we lived in Concord, probably from, you know, 85 to 98 was the, was a field house at St. Paul's school, which is a prep school in Concord. New Hampshire and they'd let me go in and throw and I would I would throw against the wall the wall was never late and it always <laughs> threw it back I didn't have to depend on anyone else coming in and I would I would you know try to throw to targets all the time throwing at something with purpose and um, then just transfer that to on the mound so yeah I mean that's what kept me around you know when you throw 86 and you have below average everything except command um that'll keep you in the game for a long time so walking 20 guys in 200 plus innings was obviously a very rare occurrence when you did walk somebody did you have like a visceral inner reaction to when that <laughs> happened was that shocking to you or what would take us through that a little bit um i remember i walked terry mulholland i think with the phillies at veteran stadium and i was pissed at that because it was the opposing pitcher <laughs> um and, you know, it gets to one of those things where you get to that count and you're like, oh, my God, the little man pops up and you go, he can't walk the pitcher. Um, but I rarely, you know, I didn't get into a lot of three ball counts. And um, uh, and so, but you know, there was one time. You know, so, so, no, I mean, I it's part of the game. And if it was... Um, you know, I, there sometimes there were walks which were good, although I still didn't like walking people in that regard. Um, I should have the guy that I should have walked was Barry Bonds in '96. Um, we we're playing at Qualcomm Stadium, and Barry hit a two-run home run off me in the first inning to left field, and then the game was like three to two in the seventh, top of the seventh, and Bonds comes up with. Uh, bases loaded and one out and pretty good situation for him right and I'm thinking that I'm like screw it I ain't I'm not walking this guy screw that I'm going after him so I but I decided that I was going to trick him Lars I, I was going to throw him that you know the the back door or the uh, the back foot hard slider um, you know to get him to swing over it the problem was that I didn't throw hard enough to get the ball to that spot with the intent that I had. And he hit a grand slam <laughs> and knocked me out of the game. So that's one that I should have walked. Fortunately, you're not alone, I don't think. There's plenty of other pitchers who are probably haunted by that same image. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, 
So, no, but I just, um, I can't stand walks. You know, I mean, we were with the Red Sox. Dice K would pitch, and I'd turn the TV off. Uh, <laughs> Dice K Matsusaka. And it's like, come on. Seriously? So, now I just, the other thing I always felt like my philosophy was the only people that don't like a fast game are the beer vendors uh, and the concession stands because they want to sell more, obviously. Everyone else wants to play and get the hell out That's of there. Right. So why not help them speed it up a little yeah. bit, <laughs> you know? So Tukes, um, I should have mentioned it off the top, but obviously you have a book out there, 90% Mental, and actually that Bond story is in there, but we're going to get through some of that stuff as well and some of the, the great stories that are in that book along the way. Um, but to, to fill people in that, that don't remember your playing career, beyond that great control that you had, which helped you to an all-star game in 1992, you won 110 games in 13 seasons. Uh, you grew up in New England in, in Concord, New Hampshire, but... Drafted by the Yankees, made your debut with the Yankees, and that's happened to a lot of people, obviously, that, that were Red Sox fans maybe growing up that become um, brought into that Yankees organization. Um, but but how was that? Because you tell the story in the book of you got your first win with the Yankees and you have a giant bottle of champagne, right, from George Steinbrenner to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's upstairs still. Has not been opened in, what is it, 34 years? Um and yeah, so um, you know, I no one. Well, I'm just kind of pausing here. You know, everyone was hoping that I would be drafted by the Red Sox, and I had a chance to sign with the Sox as a as a free agent um, after my uh, I dropped out of. I think I went to Rutgers. I can't. I had so many. I went to Rutgers University initially, and I dropped out and went to ended up going to, to St. Leo College. And so I was essentially a free agent and could have signed with the Red Sox then. Um, didn't do it. Went to the, um, in the draft, 19th round by the Yankees, which was great. And, you know, there was another guy, two actually two people from our area that also play with the Yankees. One was the park in which I was played high school ball on was Rolf, uh, Rolf Park. Red Rolf played for the Yankees in the 30s or 40s, 30s and 40s. Um, and then Joe LaFay, who um, came up with the Yankees, he, he, he was on the uh, 1980 uh, Phillies World Series team. He batted between Morgan and Schmidt. Um, so he's also from Concord, New Hampshire. And so being a Yankee was great. And, um, you know, the, the people in the area really supported me. And yeah, that, that first game, I think, you know, I know that there are carloads of people that drove from New Hampshire to the Bronx and, um, were there for that game. And, and yeah, I got back to, you know, after the game, we won the game and there was a magnum of champagne in my locker and I took it home and, been taking care of it ever since. <laughs> Is there something that could make you open it at some point or? Well, I thought when my daughter gets married, perhaps, um, you know, it's, I don't even know if it would still, if you shake it up, what would come out of it? Maybe, <laughs> I don't even know if there's anything in it anymore. Uh, but I had originally thought when my daughter gets married, but she's, she's very much, uh, she's single and a couple more years away, perhaps. So that's not going to happen. But either, either that or we buy a yacht here in Maine and I smash it across the bow. Um, 
you know, which could also be a, a good way to, to open that. Call thing. the boat the boss and then smash the, the Steinbrenner bottle across yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, so too, cause I remember you, you telling me a story about uh, making the big league team with the, with the Yankees. And you said all offseason, you kind of visualize going to spring training, walking into the manager's office and him telling you, Hey, you made the, the big league team. My, I'm remembering that correctly, right? Yeah, yeah. And so totally. it seems like you kind of had a, whether it was conscious or subconscious, just knack for kind of mental skills preparation while you were playing. And um, I'm curious if, if, if during your career, if that was something like, wow, I, I really like the mental side of this and, and this is something that I want to do after my, my playing career is finished. Was that something that started brewing during your playing career? And like, what made you find it? What made you aware of its importance while you were still playing? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, I started doing the imagery stuff back when I was in high school. Um, my dad had a book, The Power of Positive Thinking, Norman Vincent Peale wrote, and it said, if you can see it and believe it, you can achieve it. And so I, you know, I knew enough anecdotal stories about imagery or visualization. And um, so I would practice that in high school and, uh, you know, and then through, I think I probably did a little bit here and there, but you know, when I got put on the roster and was driving the spring training that year in my 1978 two-tone brown Mercury Zephyr, um, uh, they had pinstriping though. So it was really elite Zephyr. Um, then I started to create this image of, you know, like you talked about going into Lou's office and, having him tell me that I made the team. So, but every, every night before I started a game, I would walk Pompano beach with my Walkman at the time and listen to music and see myself pitching and, you know, just dancing out on the beach, just all alone. It was beautiful. And I pitched 20 consecutive scoreless innings and I got a tap on the shoulder from the clubby and he said, Lou wants to see you. And I literally walked into my dream. Um, so I knew it was powerful and had various games throughout my career that, you know, I, I knew what was going to happen before it even happened. Uh, and then of course, you know, self-talk, uh, is a big part of that. You know, we all fight that negative voice in our heads and I learned through time, uh, ways that I could deal with that, um, during performance. And so I really didn't. No, when I when I retired, the only reason I retired because my desire to be home with my family was greater than my desire to play. It was quite simple. I think I probably could have a couple more years, but um, mentally I wasn't there. And I really, uh, the first year was kind of cool and I went back to school and finished my undergrad in physical education. And then it hit me like, shit, now what? <laughs> What the hell am I going to do now? Right? I mean, every every athlete goes through that. Um, and I really believe that. Um, so I was working for the, for the Red Sox as a pitching consultant. And I met a guy that was, this would have been, oh, I can't remember, 99 maybe. He was doing some consultant with Shea Hillenbrand. And um, Hillenbrand 
I was a third baseman, and he went, this guy's name is Doug Gardner. He went to BU, and he's like, yeah, BU's got a good sports psych program that's well-known, and I'm like, damn, that maybe I should do that. And I waited three years um, to, to apply, but I did it because I wanted to help myself learn the strategies of how to cope with what was going on with me. Um, in addition to, you know, parlaying, uh, my professional experience on the field with a educational background. So, um, so that's why I did it. And, you know, it was a good thing to do. I just, you know, I kind of suffered, a, suffered a while for three years to figure out what the hell I was going to do. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned the Yankees debut and that was back in 86 and you had a, had a nice year there. Um, but then it was back to the minors a little bit for a couple of years, and you really didn't solidify yourself in the bigs until um, the Cardinals in 1990. At that point, 29 years old. Um, so it's obviously a long journey, and baseball was different back then as far as the, how people looked at the, the mental skills of it all, and it's come a long way, and you've been a big part of that, obviously. How much of your, you know, digging into this stuff and digging into the mental side comes from the fact that your journey was so unique and that it took you a while to get there. And, and you kind of had to battle those, those kind of mental demons of confidence and, and finding that, you know, especially the way you pitched with the, the low velocity to get there. How mm-hmm. much of your current career can you kind of look back on and say, it's because of my playing journey that I'm doing this now? I think, uh, Tim, I think a good part of it, really, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I had two surgeries, I got traded, I got released, I got demoted six times. Um, and yeah, my first full season in the big leagues, I was 30 years old. Uh, you think about that, you know, there are guys now that, you know, David Price is 30 and he's got 10 years in the big leagues. Um, you know, so everyone's got a different path. And I really think that, you know, and Lars can maybe relate to this, but I think that struggle and this ultimate second career allowed me to really uh, create a bond with players because I could literally speak to the struggles that they were going through. You know, minor leagues, demotions, injury, you know, everything. I mean, there's, there's nothing that happened to them that I can't say that I experienced. I mean, um, so I think that I was kind of led to this, um, in a way that, you know, being one of the, one of the first former major league players to get a secondary degree in applied sports psych, um, you know, I created a pretty unique resume. Yeah. I think, I think that was something that was so instrumental in my work with you was when you came in and you said, look guys, I've, you know, and I, I was probably 19 or 20 at the time. I still remember this. This was in the cafeteria in Fort Myers. You said, I've been promoted, demoted, released, signed, you know, free agent, injured, uh, whatever. I've, I've done everything. And I remember um, being like, wow, that's that's interesting. I'm sure he has, he can really empathize. And then that was my experience with you was I was, I, I was started to have all those experiences and experiencing my friends getting released and traded. And, 
um, just having having a resource there that could empathize with that experience as a as a player was so important for me because as a player um, you're not always treated like this but there is a sense that you're you are kind of a bloodless commodity that you can <laughs> you can just get shipped across the country for a you know a, another player or a stack of money or a you know in some cases a mm-hmm. a box of bats and it kind of is dehumanizing and i think to have um a mental skills coach there who has kind of bled from similar wounds so to speak it it goes beyond degrees and expertise it just it gives you a feeling of solidarity which um you know i think i think base people forget how human athletes are because of the superhuman mm-hmm. persona and, and pedestal they get lifted on but behind behind the commercials and the adulation and the awards and notoriety and, and the posturing that the player himself does um there is a, a often very sensitive very self-conscious human being there and i think it's it's so important to have people like tukes in the industry just for the for the sake of feeling like uh there's someone in in my corner who is in my corner for for me as a human rather than me as a as a commodity and uh that's that that was so big for me in my career you know well i appreciate that and that's how i felt i mean i i've i always you know told you guys that players in the minor leagues all those years like look i i care about you as a person and um and that's foremost i mean i've i've had conversations with you know several players and i'll send out a group text i remember a couple of years ago i sent out a group text to the guys and they're like oh thanks for reminding us too that we're the ones who didn't make it and i'm like no i see i told you guys i'd be there for you no matter what so i'm you know it wasn't about getting to the big leagues it was about you as a person and but i do think you know so that creates a question of um you know, if you had two people come into the room that were going to be the mental skills coach, you would most likely connect with the person who had prior experience in that realm. Um, that's an advantage for me having been there, but it doesn't always lead to um, more uh, open discussions, especially at the higher levels, because as Lars can attest, I think. When players are in the minor leagues, they'll do anything to get to the big leagues. And when players get closer to the big leagues, they'll do anything to not let the team there that they have, you know, their mental game could use some work mm-hmm. um, because of ju- being judged or whatever. So, uh, and the separator for me with this is the kids at the lower level, you know, they realize or they don't realize you're being paid by the team and then they don't care the higher up you go the players start to get more critical of that and secretive and they don't want so they don't trust you even though i have all that experience and i get it um you know i can understand how players feel that way so my playing experience doesn't always equate to trust because of the team the team being the uh employee uh, employer uh, of my services. So it creates a really, uh, interesting paradox of, of, 
relationships, the struggles of a relationship. You had a um, interesting story relating to that, though, in the book, I thought, where um, you were able to early on, I think, and this led to you going back to BU, I think, but were able to relate to players and, and draw a line where you were there for them more than the team, which I thought was interesting and has probably helped you along the way. But you told the story in the book about a player who came to you and said, I have a cocaine addiction and I want to, mm. I want some help with it. Um, and you just in that moment, um, I think a lot of things came, became probably foggy and clear for you, right? If you want to tell that story. No, that's true, Tim. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was kind of the tipping point of, uh, leading me to go back to school. Yeah. The player, we were in Pawtucket and, uh, I, you know, known him for a couple of years, worked his way up, really good pitcher. Um, and um uh, he told me and i said well i have to tell the eap and he goes no, i don't want to tell the eap i'm like well i i gotta tell somebody i'm he said i'm telling you and i'm like "Shit, <laughs> okay so i called the players association the medical director for the players association and drove to new york um we left that after the night game in pawtucket drove to new york got to the city got a hotel room got him to the appointment in the morning and drove him back before pitchers stretch and no one knew. Um, eventually it came out that, you know, he had an issue and it did come back to me and, you know, the team was pissed, but, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, look, I'm always going to be on the player side of things and create that trust. Um, it's just whether or not, you know the the player believes that that's really the case but that that was evident that i needed uh more experience than just consulting and um you know so the combination of you know meeting the guy that did sports psych my own desire to help myself and that event which i had forgotten about uh really kind of led me to going to school yeah, I remember um, I was going through a hard time one time and we were talking and there was something similar where you're like, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the team asks how you're doing. And I just, I told them it was none of their business. What, what you tell me is, is between <laughs> us. So that was like a, that was very comforting to me that, to know that I had someone to confide in that, that, you know, I, I never had that issue of like, I understand what you're saying about um, players kind of trusting you because you're an employee of the team as well. But I think um, for me, it was very clear that what, what was discussed between us was was kept between us. Um, something else that you, you really mm -hmm. stood out to me that you said was, or you pointed out, and was that, you know, you kind of said, you guys, you guys work so much on your physical game. You work on your hitting, your throwing, your, your defense, you work on your base running, you work on your pitching. Uh, you work in the weight room, you work on your diet, and you spend so much time and energy and money focusing on this, but you don't spend enough time on the on the mental side of it, and which is which can kind of let all all of that work kind of crumble if you don't have that kind of squared away. And that was very true in my career. Like my my mental my mental game early in my career held me back from time in the big leagues. It held me back from uh, probably a decent amount of money and it helped me back from the most important thing was the ability to enjoy myself while I was playing. 
Um, so you were right about that. And mm. I'm wondering, um, you know, you, you're kind of like a, like an OG of the mental skills at this point. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've seen a change in that, like how, how big of a change, how much more receptive and guys are to pursuing, um, you know, whether it's through you or other, you know, mental skills coaches, how much more focus guys put on that along with the other, you know, kind of five tools in today's game. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Well, I think, you know, when, when we were together, you know, I don't think every, not every team had a mental skills coach. Um, so it was in the industry, it was not commonplace to have. It was something the Red Sox chose to have. It was extra expense on their part, another budget uh, item. And um, so the, um, so it's grown a lot. And I think that, you know, developing trust over time and, and certainly years of you know, players coming in and, you know, I was there 15 years. So you, you get to know the whole system and players throughout the whole system and take time to meet them. Um, and the, the, uh, and then other teams started to have that growth. And then in, in, in the industry, um, right now, I'd say that 28 of the 30 teams, 27 of the 30 teams have somebody. It's actually a requirement in the collective uh, bargaining agreement that teams should provide this service for players. So it's really grown. Um, and I think with that, the people are practicing it more at a, they're, they're more familiar with it at a younger age. And hopefully they have those tools that they can carry through to the big league. So I hope that they work on it more. <clears throat> um, I think they've been exposed to it earlier. Uh, than than players uh, back when you were in the minor leagues, uh, but I still think that it's it's such a um, I don't know if it's fully understood. It's just not a tangible thing. You know, you can go lift weights, you can go run, you get instant feedback, you feel good, you're in motion, you know, you're sweating, you're getting results, um, good or bad that's tangible yeah you know this is like okay we're gonna practice imagery every day well why the hell would i want to do that i want to go watch tv you know it's just not the same and it's not until you know the players that you know you hear the players talk about it you know great players have made reference to their mental game um and you realize that wow you know these guys there's a common theme with that is that most most of the great players have worked on it or know the importance of it and make that part of their routine and part of their practice. And, but not everyone does. And I just, I feel like a, it's some people don't think they need it. B some people don't understand it and C some people don't see the immediate results for it and then kind of give up on it. And it's not, um, you know, it's not a linear thing. Uh, it, it's, gradual and there's peaks and valleys and it's just heck you know it's it's really Lars it's mental skills is life skills yeah. period just applied to baseball yeah. it really is if you looked at it like that like you know what you say to yourself during the day makes you determines how you feel how do you respond when someone cuts you off in track traffic or your flight gets delayed or you know that's a choice you know uh 
getting sleep, uh, you know, exercising, all these things are part of, you know, well-being. And if you look at it in a global sense, you know, mental skills is, is really life, how you adjust to things, how you adapt to things, how you overcome things. Um, baseball is the same way. And that, that human element, and you had said it earlier, you know, I think people forget that, um, you know, there's a human element to this game, especially when you're, you know, there's 300 players in a minor league players in an organization and 10 of them may get to the big leagues. Uh, you know, you do oftentimes feel like a commodity and, uh, and even, you know, the coaches don't directly do that, make you feel that way, but you know, their, their bosses want them to teach you how to perform so that you can become an asset or a major league, you know, major league, uh, player for your team or asset to obtain other major league players. So it's really important for the players to have that confidant that, um, to help them through that times. And oftentimes, hopefully it's the mental skills coach that can do that. Yeah, definitely. I'm also curious kind of about the, you know, the flip side of it. There's, um, you know, there's that great Susan Sarandon quote in Bull Durham when she's talking about kind of the, the bliss, blissfully ignorant pitching prospect, Nuke Lelouch, where she says, I think it's kind of at the end of the movie, she says, I stopped worrying about Nuke. The world was made for people without self-awareness. And were, were there any players that you're just like, you know, this, this guy is just so blissfully ignorant or kind of dense and he's playing so well that I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to touch him. I don't want to like put thoughts into his head or introduce anything that's kind of, kind of take him off this path of just yeah. like see the ball, hit the ball, or just, you know, kind of that kind of thing. Well, you know, I mean, I, I never really worked with him, but I, he was with us Manny Ramirez was that guy, you know, he was, um, I don't know if he was aloof or brilliant, you know, uh, at the mental game, but you know, he was a guy that, you know, everyone had a perception that it was crazy, but this guy was a great hitter and he forgot his last step bat and he didn't worry about the next one. And, um, so I think there, there probably has been, you know, one, one guy that comes to mind is Pedroia. Um, you know, PD is such a great player and, and his injuries certainly have curtailed them the last couple of years, but you know, his, his mindset was just so strong. You know, he has ups and downs, but in the end he knows that he's going to succeed. And I just feel like, you know, there's, I remember telling him, uh, more than once, you know, he used to joke me, he goes, Tooks, I'm the one that's teaching you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, Petey, you know, there's really nothing I can tell you, you know, so, but there are some players like that and ignorance is bliss. I mean, that's it. You are an overthinker. Um, and you know, and, and that's a great trait, uh, in real life because you're highly intelligent, you're sensitive, you're caring, you have all these great attributes, but they became a hindrance as an athlete because they got yeah. in the way of thinking. And that's what happens to a lot of people that are, you know, I've talked to a lot of players with similar qualities um, that those attributes really make it difficult to, to let go and to just play, um, you know, to care without caring. Um, really uh, and 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 so to that i just i just um buddy of mine is a coach at 
Babson College in, in Massachusetts just asked me about one of my favorite quotes from a book. And, and I told him it's from The Inner Game of Tennis. And um, you may remember oh, this. Books, I put yeah. it in the, in the locker rooms. But it, it, yeah, but this, this paragraph is abandoned. Um, and it's at the end of the book where it talks about, this is a good word to describe what happens to an athlete. I'll just put an athlete instead of tennis player who feels he has nothing to lose. He stops caring about the outcome and plays all out. It is caring yet not caring. It is effort, but effortless at the same time. That's a really hard place to get to. Um, and the, the great players, you know, can do that. Some some players, it's much more difficult, but that's the ultimate. The, the, yeah. Is to, to play like you don't care. It's really hard to the let go. The only time I really can say I ever truly felt like that was I was in AAA in Iowa in 2014. And before the game, they told me they were sending me to double A um, after the game. Oh. Actually, they told me the night before and said, you, you know, can you play tomorrow? But we're sending you down after the game. And I had, I was really upset about it, but I also was like, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. So whatever. And I had the amount of freedom I, I played in that <laughs> game was astounding. I hit a home run. I hit a double. I walked and they, for some reason they hit like seven balls to me at first base. And I was like throwing balls behind my back and over my head and like making all these plays. And <laughs> I just couldn't believe how free I felt because I wow. knew I was getting sent down, you know, and I was like, man, that, that was a truly liberating experience of that game. So I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. Well, that Sure. Yeah. Tukes, you you uh, worked with so many of the Red Sox that went on to win World Series, obviously, mm. um, both in Boston and guys like Anthony Rizzo, who who won in Chicago, and and now you're kind of back with Rizzo, working with the Cubs now after uh, going to San Francisco after leaving Boston. But you think of Papelbon and Pedroia, Euclid, Buckles, Ellsbury, all these guys. Um, that that you worked with. And in the book, you get a little more specific on some of them. And I thought Lester was interesting because even though you knew him from way back when he first kind of got into the organization, it seemed like he didn't really connect with you until he was a great major league pitcher in some trouble. Um, and you kind of helped him out of that. But that that's, was really interesting to me that, you know, some guys – get into this stuff early on and it helps them even get to the big leagues. But then other pitchers, it's, it's later on in their careers where this stuff makes sense and helps them out. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like many of the, the Red Sox guys, I knew John when he was, you know, at a ball and, um, and we'd play golf together and, you know, he was always better than the rest of the group and really didn't have a lot to talk about. You know, John's, pretty hard on himself and um yeah he's in the big leagues 2013 and we're in oakland and uh he's struggling and he's like man what do you got and you know we talk about it in the book and you're making reference to you know i said the only thing we haven't talked about john is imagery you've been reluctant to well we have talked about it you've not been open to it so if you're if you want to do that and he goes, yeah, let's go. So we went into the uh, coach's uh, office during the game, and I led him through a guided imagery, and, and he was in it. Uh, he got into it, and I said, look, we'll go home for the break. I'll make you an audio program. And uh, and the rest is history, as they say. He had a great second half. Red Sox won the World Series. Um, he's still listening to that same audio program now. Uh 
I, I often say, John, you, you know, you want me to redo that? Nope, it's fine. <laughs> He's a creature of habit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and Riz, you know, the story in the book about Riz with the audio program that I think Laz or Lars can maybe remember those programs that I made that were on cassettes, um, tape. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. They were CDs. Yeah. That's right. And, um, and then, you know, getting to, uh, talk with Rich Hill when Rich Hill came over to the to the Sox and the minor leagues and you know his resurrection of his career. I was talking to him in the dugout when before he got released by the Red Sox and he ended up going to play indie ball. Um, I'll never forget it. He said, "I want to start," and I'm like, "Are you out of your mind? Are you kidding me? You know, you're 35 years old. You're a lefty specialist." I said, "You know." just stick with, you know, he's talking about changing his arm slot and doing this and that. And so he got released, you know, uh, actually he went to the nationals first, bounced around, then he went to the independent ball started and the rest is history, you know, unbelievable starter, 38 years old, striking people out, diving into third base, uh, just one of the best guys in the world. So that was a real, pleasure to talk with him and, and help him. And then Andrew Miller was the same way. You know, he, uh, he was a guy that was a high draft pick, um, with, with the Marlins, I believe, or Tigers get traded to the Marlins, uh, always kind of underperformed. And, you know, again, in Pawtucket, uh, talked many times to him, um, and talked, he, he shared all these guys shared the stories willingly in the book, but just about, his negative voice and how to overcome that. And so really, really thankful that these guys, you know, were comfortable to share their stories and contribute um, to them. And, and about all those guys, you know, I just texted Euclid the other day. Uh, I think he tweeted out about my book. Um, you know, uh, Josh Reddick was another Red Sox guy that, that, um, you know, came up through the system that's won a ring and, uh, you know, like you said, Papelbon, Ellsbury, Buckholz, you know, um, there's some pretty, pretty good guys along that way. And it was great to be part of it, you know, to get to know these people as people and see their success as players. So another guy who's pretty good is Mark McGuire. And, uh, in your book, in your <laughs> book, you, uh, you detailed this and I actually did some Tuke stalking last night on the internet and I found the video and for those who aren't aware nice. of this, Tuke's threw uh, multiple EFIS pitches to Mark McGuire and I'm just wondering if you can kind of take us through that whole process and what, what made you want to do that and kind of how it went. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I... I, that Rick Russell, once the, the great pitcher, he pitched mostly with the Giants, but he said, you can, I can't throw harder, but I can throw slower. <laughs> so I changed speeds on my curveball so that I could literally just kind of lob it in there. And I would throw it a couple times a game. I remember, you know, throwing it to Manny Ramirez, and I remember, you know, I'd flip it out there. And my son, Griffin, knows, uh, Lars yeah. knows Griffin, but he was young at. He called it the dominator. Um, <laughs> so, and then it became the two finger wiggle. Um, so the McGuire story, it's 1998. Um, we're in the Metrodome 
and we're going over the scouting report. Uh, the year before, McGuire um, hit a fastball off me. I that hit the cameraman in center field, <laughs> um, and I'm like, so over the in the pregame report, I told Steinbach, the catcher. Um, I said, Steiny, if if I get the first two guys out in the first inning, I'm throwing Mac Ephesus every pitch. <laughs> and he goes, Cool, let's do it. <laughs> so so there's forty-four steps from the twins, the old Metrodome Clubhouse, down to the floor of the field. And you know, usually the relievers are all hanging upstairs, a couple of the extra men in the first inning. Well, I got the first two guys out of the inning, and there was a herd of people running <laughs> down from the clubhouse down to the I could hear them. You know, they come into the dugout to see this. So sure enough, I flipped it up there. And, you know, he had that little wiggle with the timing mechanism. And and he stopped and he took it and he kind of put his head down and he kind of looked out. And I threw it again. <laughs> and he had a little squibber. He, he had, I threw it to him twice. He had a squibber to first one time. And I think he had a little pop-up to second the other time. Um, and... It was great. The fans loved it. I loved it. Everyone was like laughing. Um, and so that was a, that was at a time I painted a lithograph of McGuire and Griffey during the home run chase that year. And they agreed to sign, you know, a hundred copies that made this a limited edition print and the money went to the Boys and Girls Club. So, you know, I felt a little... It's like, damn, I just asked him to sign all these prints and I'm just up here flipping curveballs. <laughs> and he, uh, so I said, hey, Mac, look, I'm, I appreciate, you know, just trying to have some fun and compete. And he said, uh, he goes, and I have a signed picture of him that when I was covering first on the ground ball, he's running to first and I'm looking at him like, are you going to punch me or are you going to laugh? But he goes, hey, I was a sucker for those. I would have swung at them all day. <laughs> um, the, and so that was great. But the best one, one of the best ones, we are playing the Cardinals. I was with the um, Padres. Um, well, actually, there's two. I'll, I'll tell you one. Well, I'll, I'll switch to go back to the Metrodome against Albert Bell. Albert was with the White Sox. And um, the count, they had a guy on second base and two outs and Albert was up and I'm like, I got an open base. So I threw him a three O Ephus. Um, and he swung <laughs> and he, he had a little looper to Pat Mears at shortstop and he came in the dugout and, um, he took his helmet off and, um, uh, there was, yeah, there was one out. That was a second out. And he's staring out at the dugout and, Robin Ventura is the next hitter, and he goes up to Steinbach, and he goes, Hey, uh, Steiny, you know, you might want to tell Tukes to take a different exit out of the ballpark because Albert's going to fuck And did you? <laughs> so, I, uh, no, I, that was, um, but no, that was, and then the other story was Willie McGee. I threw it to him. I threw the first two pitches. One was 46, the other was 47. And then I threw a fastball right down the middle at 85 and he took it. And he was, we were former teammates. He wouldn't talk to me. And Ozzie Smith goes, Tukes, Willie is mad at you. And I'm like, what's he mad at? He goes, man, you embarrassed him. And I said, oh man, come on. Willie's the nicest guy. I wasn't trying to embarrass him. 
So I started to go talk to Willie and Willie wouldn't talk to me. He's like, look, Tooks, I don't want to talk to you. You know, that was, that was some bullshit. And I'm like, come on, Willie. And he goes, all right. So he, Willie's the nicest guy. And he says, um, he's, then he starts laughing. He goes, after those first two pitches, that last one looked like it was a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 46, 47 at 86. So how's that for a change in speed? It's quite substantial. <laughs> I would never be embarrassed. If you, I, I always blame myself when I got out. I would never take it out on the pitcher for getting me out. It's any, I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, no. Maybe that was part of my issue. I should have blamed <laughs> other people. Yeah, absolutely. Deflect yeah, it, you know. That's, that's what the great putters yeah. do. It's always the grass's fault or the caddy's fault. or uh, It's not their yeah. fault, but... No, some anyway. I know I'm long-winded, but that's those are some good baseball stories. So obviously, this helps all these athletes you've dealt with, and and helps them in a lot of ways. Whether it's getting to the big leagues or, or thriving once they're there. But when you think about all the things you've learned through your education dealing with these players, do you think this is all stuff, all these skills that you know the non-athlete can also use? Maybe especially in in these times with everybody dealing with so many things right now with with coronavirus in the world. Totally. I think so. As I mentioned earlier, Tim, I think that, you know, mental skills are life skills. And I think one of the best compliments I got uh, regarding the book was from a colleague, Mike Boyle, who has been in strength and conditioning for years and trains, you know, world-class athletes and pro sports players, teams. And, and he said, it's, it's, a, it's not a baseball book, it's a success book. Um, and I was really flattered by that, but yeah, I mean, uh, everyone has a different path. Um, none of it's going to go perfectly. There's going to be obstacles that have to be overcome or worked through or around. And, you know, I, I think that that's a, that's a given in life. And I think that hearing how other people do it, anecdotal stories of how everyone does it, um, I think, you know, we can all learn from reading such such stories um, that people are sharing their experiences uh, that we can know we're not alone in this. One more thing for you, Tooks, um, and this, this kind of from the small world uh, <laughs> um, type thing. Um, you met your wife at B. May Denny's, a restaurant up in New Hampshire, and I read it in the book, and um, I had a flashback. Uh, growing up with my family, <laughs> we used to go up to New Hampshire skiing uh, kind of for one week every winter, basically, and every single year, our favorite spot for dinner was B. May Denny's. We would go there for dinner as a family. So it popped, I couldn't believe that it was in a book like this, um, this, this random restaurant in New Hampshire, um, but pretty cool, small world. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Good food. Um, yeah, I, uh, I met her there, and we've been married 31 years now, I think. So it was, uh, hey, you know what? We met, uh, tell you what, speaking of that, that was the meal. She she met me. I was a minor league baseball player. She's like, well, my brother plays softball. I'm like, yeah, that's not the same thing. <laughs> but she goes, you want to get something to eat? So she bought me a turkey club sandwich. And I'm like, she's got cash. She's got money. You know, I'm, I'm a minor leaguer. She was working as the assistant to a, a president of a hospital. She has an MBA, very smart woman. 
And so, yeah, so she, she bought me a sandwich and then I'm like, I got to hang on to this woman. So yeah, we've been together. Well, that was 34 years, been married 31 years. So it was a, it was a good sandwich. Good old B-Maze. B-Maze. Good stuff. Well, this has been great uh, catching up with you, Tooks, and hearing some of these, you know, stories from both your playing days and and um, what you do now with the mental skills coach, which you're probably having a much bigger impact on the world now than you did as a player. Uh, but thanks for taking some time and catching up here on our podcast. Oh, man. Tim, Lars, what a pleasure. Uh, it was uh, truly enjoyable to tell those stories, reconnect with a a former player whom I really have always respected and admired and continued success there, young man. And Tim, great to meet you and be part of this. This is this is really fun. Thanks for the kind words and the feeling is mutual. Tooks is always one of my favorite people in, in baseball and it's great, great catching up. Awesome. And definitely check out 90% Mental. Uh, it's Tooks' book. Um, you'll be sucked in from page one. It starts with a near-death experience on Camelback Mountain in Arizona. I started reading and I was like, I, I thought this was going to be about baseball and, and now I'm, I'm worried that the author is going to die <laughs> in the first chapter. Uh, but it, it's good. It sucks you in. It's an easy read and there's a lot of great information in there. So check it out. Um, if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash wicked pod, save 40% off. And right now we're also doing a free 90 days um, deal too during uh, COVID-19 and everything that's going on to get people um, to have something to, to do, to take up some time when people, so many people are, are at home looking for some outlets. So check that out. We'll be back again next Monday as well. Check out on Twitter. Lars is at Lars e. Anderson. I'm at Tim M. McMaster. And of course, as always, thanks to the Beantown Swing Orchestra for the great show music. Thanks for joining us.